This conversation with the novelist, Mohsin Hamid, is the 12th in an audio series we're calling Another Pakistan, recorded in midsummer 2011. It's a co-production of the Watson Institute at Brown University and the Asia Society. I'm Christopher Leiden with Mohsin Hamid in Lahore. He wrote the hair-raising novel The Reluctant Fundamentalist, soon to be a major motion picture, about a young Pakistani with something like his resume in America, a star at Princeton, a cinch in the U.S. business world, but the character Changez in the novel decides after 9-11 that he's been enlisted in a failing empire, and he comes home to Lahore and the resistance. This is open source from the Watson Institute at Brown University, an American conversation with global attitude, we call it, on a sort of listening tour of Pakistan this summer of 2011. Mohsin Hamid, shall we reenact that last conversation in your thriller of a novel where your narrator tells a spooky, shadowy American over tea in Lahore? He says, it seems an obvious thing to say, but you should not imagine that we Pakistanis are all potential terrorists just as we should not imagine that you Americans are all undercover assassins. I assumed the worst, that a gun is about to go off, and I keep arguing with myself who survives. But I also see it as a kind of paraphrase of the American-Pakistani relationship, and I wonder who survives that too. Well, I think it does try to uh, pick up echoes of the American-Pakistani relationship, but, but the novel is, is playing with, with the reader uh, and the role of the reader in terms of shaping the story. And uh, for me, it was much more interesting to, to construct a novel where you don't have enough information to decide what's really going to happen. Um, but you begin to feel, hopefully, you begin to feel some gut sense of where you think this is headed. And people come back with very different senses of what that is. I mean, some people think, you know, the American kills the Pakistani or the Pakistani kills the American or they both kill each other or neither of them. Uh, and all of those, uh, I think, interpretations and readings are open. Um, to me, what's more interesting than who kills uh, the other person or if anybody kills the other person is how easy it is in our era to construct a feeling where we can become convinced that two men are capable of this kind of violence. And uh, that, to me, suggests that we're living in an era where our individual humanity is, is very tenuous, that it's so easy to, to construct a lethal persona uh, for someone who fits whatever stereotype we have in mind. For myself, I, I had to come to Lahore to feel, aha, this is why they call it such a beautiful city. All hands love this city, the brick, the antiquity, the trees, the openness of it, even the, even the British remains. But in the meantime, what the book, tells me really is of another way to think about the last 10 years, starting with 9-11. In the book, Changez is on a mission, on a business mission to the Philippines. He's 21 or two years old when he sees on the television the Twin Towers burning up at the bottom of Manhattan. And he's kind of shocked himself to find himself smiling. There's something he's rooting for there. And he's secretly thrilled about it. Take us into that, into that head, Changez's head, I presume. Well, I think um, the you know the smile uh, that Changez has when the twin towers go down, or when the first of them goes down, um, is a smile rooted in in symbolism. Um, you know, somewhere in Changez is a resentment towards America, 
and uh, and I think it's it's for me. I first encountered that smile when I was um, I I was in London when September 11th took place, and I just left New York and moved to London a month before, and I'd been living in New York for several years before that, and my ex roommate worked in the World Financial Center right next door to the World Trade Center, and so somebody said a plane has hit the World Trade Center and. I was in a meeting and a whole bunch of us got up and went to the gym uh, in this office building where there were big TVs in front of the treadmills. And everybody was standing there, you know, watching this. And I, and I you know, being a writer, um, I'm always watching people. <laughs> and among the, exp- the uh, expressions that I saw were these sort of repressed or half-repressed smiles. And these weren't Pakistanis. I mean, these were people, you know, in London from all sorts of nationalities. And as I've traveled around the world since then, whether it's in Brazil or Paris or Australia, you know, or elsewhere, mm-hmm. uh, people have told me about these smiles. And, uh, uh, and I think that, that, that this smile comes about because in that moment of September 11th was this idea that this powerful country, the United States, um, you know, had been humbled, humiliated, slapped, paid back. And since so many people around the world either resent U.S. power, um, or have been at the receiving end mm. of American, you know, armed uh, interventions. Uh, I think that's a fertile territory for this to take place. But even so, um, one needn't smile. I don't think most people in Pakistan probably did. Um, that smile also requires you in that moment to forget the human loss of life which is taking place. So in other words, to have the smile, you have to, um, you have to see the symbol uh, and ignore the humanity. And that's what happens to Chinggis in that moment. Although he becomes aware that it's afterwards, he's, you know, that, that he's done this thing, and it's a uh, it's a dehumanizing thing to do. But I think that's where the smile comes from, and it, it felt quite central uh, uh, to the novel because, uh, in smiling that way, Chinggis, a man who's in love with an American woman and who has a great American job and has a great American college background and is doing very well in America, suddenly realizes that he's rooting for some other team. You know, that he's part of some other tribe mm. and that's what shocks him and the novel sort of explodes where he where he goes with that feeling Chingaz's girlfriend erica has been mysteriously pre-9-11 sort of shrinking into a depression or an illness not quite clear what she disappears she may have killed herself she's stuck in the rut of a childhood relationship almost with a man named chris and can't get out of it i mean is christopher columbus Part of the story is Erica, us Americans, you know, am I Erica? I am Erica, America, or or what? And what part of Erica is all of us Americans? Nostalgic, not dealing, unclear, shrinking, disappearing. Well, I mean, having lived in America for. You know, 15, 16 years, I think it probably is, 17 maybe. Um, I do think that there are certain impulses that you see in the United States that some of the characters are touching upon. So, you know, Erica, obviously, just, you know, as you yourself just said, the, the name, uh, you know, echoes America. Um, and I think for me, she does capture a certain crippling, uh, nostalgic impulse, mm. which perhaps has always been there in America. I don't know. Um, but feels like uh, has become, you know, much more powerful uh, recently. Uh, you know, America that sort of uh, is, is, is resolutely looking back 
um, to find its best self instead of imagining forward. And uh, which is quite a contrast from what America felt like in the Clinton years. You know, whatever you think of, of, of Bill Clinton's presidency, it felt like a forward-looking place. There was the internet, the economic boom, etc., etc. Um, the crippling nostalgia, which I think came into place, um, and, and there were many different ways in which it manifested itself. So, uh, you know, words like honor and duty, you know, started coming forward. You know, people start saying things like blood and treasure, in you know otherwise civilized op-ed pieces, you know, um, as they were talking about pirates' booty, you know, um, uh, it's a strange term, you know, blood and treasure. When we were talking about you know the lives of our you know young men and women and uh, billions of dollars of government funding, but that sort of you know blood and treasure motif, um, sudden appearance of uniform people on television all the time, um, you know these uh, you know retro heroic uh, exhortations that we began to hear. Uh, you know, all of that, that change in America's discourse, you know, the giant flags everywhere. Mm. Um, to me, you know, that felt uh, incredibly nostalgic, as though um, there was an attempt to recapture uh, the greatness of the Second World War generation of Americans, you know, who bequeathed to their children, the baby boomers, you know, this enormously mm. wealthy uh, powerful nation, um, but with none of the shared sacrifice or you know uh, none of the hard work really. So anyway, I mean, all of this to me felt it felt like this this desperate desire to put on daddy or granddaddy's Second World War uniform mm. um, without having earned it through the you know the sheer sacrifice commitment. You know, um, I think none of that happened. So, so, so there's this nostalgic impulse, and um, uh, that was going on. Cengiz experiences the United States at the most high-powered and sort of self-regarding level one can imagine. Princeton, lean, mean, financial corporations, the best and the brightest, so to speak, with all its ironies. And then he, he can't get out of it fast enough. Explain Cengiz's head on that. What was it for him even for you too, perhaps, that isn't working in our elite. What, what shocks me about America, the way America is headed, is um, that in some ways it's becoming increasingly Pakistan-like hmm. in the sense that uh, the American elite is becoming much, much richer compared to the rest of the population. Yep. And America's great success, which was this enormous middle that had the bulk of political power, the bulk of economic, you know, resources, etc., is being crushed. And, you know, this America where there were relatively high tax rates and where um, there was a notion of shared service in the form of military service, for example. Um, the draft, you, yeah. Yeah, the draft. I mean, the draft is a, you know, in a way, a deeply socialistic notion. I mean, it's, it's the idea that society can ask you to put your life on the line for society because it chooses to. Um, you know, that's, that's the biggest tax that there is. Um, yet America bore that for decades. And in this time, built up a system of, you know, very good public high schools and primary schools, you know, very good infrastructure and excellent colleges. And, you know, everybody, you could see this sort of evolution um, where, you know, each generation was better off than the previous. And, um, you know, in my time in elite America, you know, over the course of the last decade and a half, uh, what I was struck by was how that system was basically collapsing. 
um, you know, friends of mine are earning insane amounts of money, those who've stayed in sort of the hedge fund or whatever world. Um, oftentimes it's unclear, you know, what they're actually contributing to society. Uh, and meanwhile, you know, um, the school system is collapsing and, and the American middle class is being eviscerated. And uh, and all of this is being done, you know, on the back of certain kind of demagogic, you know, uh, 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 you know, calls um, and tribalism. And I think, you know, here in Pakistan, we've seen many of the same sorts of things. Um, you know, that that, that this uh, combination of xenophobia, um, uh, unwillingness to pay taxes, um, uh, comfort with a powerful entrenched elite. Uh, that you know co-ops the democratic process. I mean, that's what we have here, you know, and it, it isn't great. Um, and uh, I felt, I think, very comfortable in elite American circles because the same notions of hierarchy, the same notions of of how an elite functions, were very easy as a Pakistani for me to to understand. Um, really? Yeah, really? I think so. I mean, I think sometimes my, some of my, my American friends, when we first started out, had a, had more difficulty dealing with you know the corporate context than I did because. In Pakistan, you learn very early, you know, from infancy, you know, how hierarchy works, you know, and how you modulate the way you deal with people based on their relationship in a hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, this is somebody who's a bit older than you, a little bit older than that, a wealthy person, a poor person, a family elder, or this or that. I mean, there's millions of variations. And, you know, each one uh, demands a certain kind of, you, know, you relate to them in a certain kind of way. Um, and I think that, you know, that, that is um, much better preparation for sort of an American, you know, corporate elite social milieu than a liberal arts education, which teaches everybody's equal and call everybody by their first names and just hang out. Um, because even if you're still using the first name, you know, underneath that are millions of gradations of hierarchy which exist in American society, just like they do in Pakistani society. Except here... The elite embraces that, uses it to oppress everybody and says, you know, um, this is the expectation. In America, the pretense is it doesn't exist, um, which makes it actually maybe even more effective uh, because people don't see it. But for me, it was, it was you know, blazingly obvious. It's completely fascinating. I mean, uh, um... I mean another, way, another thing I'll tell you about this is very interesting is, you know, so my American experience was six years of my childhood, 1974 to 80. Elementary school, Stanford, California, brilliant public school with brilliant kids. I mean, the children of, of uh, uh, grad students at Stanford in the 1970s when California, I assume, had a lot of money for its public schools. Jimmy Carter was president. Ronald Reagan was the ex-governor of your fine... There you go. So I had that experience. Then I came back. I went to Princeton, 89 to 93, went to law school, worked, etc. So I've had, you know, I had couple of different entry points into West America. West and East? West and East, 70s, 90s, uh, liberal arts college, corporate New York, you know, a few different slices of it. Um, and until September 11th, I remained, I think, quite blind um, to, the, to the kinds of inequalities that exist in America. Hmm. Um, I mean, of course I knew. I mean, I'd, I'd uh, studied American history, and, but... Um, but I hadn't experienced it firsthand. I was a foreigner, maybe, but even that, not much. You know, the nice thing about the States is that if you, you know, if you speak uh, English pretty well, you're an American. And, uh, and you know, I have a chameleon-like 
uh, ability to, to start <laughs> sounding like whoever I'm talking to because I've lived in all these different places. So I wound up speaking, you know, pretty American. And, um, uh, but it wasn't until after 9-11 when suddenly this sort of Muslim identity was, you know, thrust upon me and this, you know, suspect class, you know, potential terrorist. And, you know, when my wife and I and baby girl would fly into JFK airport and, you know, that evening I'd be giving a lecture at Columbia or whatever, or would be on TV or radio or... Will we get there, Daddy? You know, and, and, and instead, instead it's, you know, spend a few hours, you know, in the secondary room having some inane conversation, you know. Um, and, and, you know, you're thinking, look, either either you actually do think that I am a terrorist, you know, in which case, since I come several times a year and have been coming and going from this country for about 40 years, you should have enough facts to have made up your mind. Or if not, do you really think I'm going to blurt out that, yes, I have had combat training when the last 40 times I have not said this? And, you know, it doesn't make any sense. Why are we having this strange conversation? You know, what is the point? You I mean, you can Google me. Um, you know, it's easy to find out who I am. So, so what are we doing? And, the, and the, you know, the agent having the conversation doesn't actually doesn't appear to feel that he is on a hot lead and I'm just one of 100 people in line who are, gonna, you know, who are waiting their turn, spending a few hours. And I started to think about this and wonder, you know, why is it going on? Um, uh, you know, once I can understand, but the 50th or 100th time it happens, you start thinking, this is really inefficient, both from a U.S. standpoint and from my standpoint. And then I thought, well, you know, it's going on because, you know, one explanation is that, you know, that this is how democracy works in America, that leaders must say that people like me have been stopped and questioned so that if there's an attack, they can't be outflanked on the right and be made to suffer electorally. So I'm basically, you know, the sort of insurance policy against terrorist attacks. That's what I'm in. That's, so that's possible. Maybe that's the reason. But another part of the reason is it seems designed to make me feel unwelcome. You know, certainly I can think of no more inhospitable experience. And, I, and I've traveled all over the world, you know, uh, and I've never had anything like my repeated, you know, delays at, at U.S. immigration. And so I thought maybe it's just meant to make me feel, you know, unwelcome. And then I thought, you know, a third thing, which is sort of more pernicious, and I hope isn't true, but I, I now find myself wondering is, you know, maybe this is the way in which America creates its suspect classes. That it just begins to introduce a few, I mean, this has happened throughout U.S. history, a few, you know, little things. Um, because you are a Muslim from a place like Pakistan, um, you know, you should just expect that you're going to have to register or you're going to have to spend a few hours or you're going to have to, you know, not get a visa or you're going to have to whatever. And uh, if you get arrested, you'll be deported. If you um, are arrested and you have any information we want, you'll be held without trial. You know, that just sort of slips in. And it's sort of, you know, uh, the effect of all of this is it, it, it creates in someone like me the sense that, so this is how these suspect classes get made. Hmm. You know, this is how the Japanese internment camps happen. And this is how, um, you know, the African-American experience, you know, worked, obviously in very different ways. But, but... There is, in America, uh, which I hadn't appreciated until then, um, I had thought all of those things were historical accidents. That somehow, despite America's basic goodness and sense of all human beings being equal, the African-American experience and the Asian-American experience had happened. You know? But now I wonder, actually, if, that, if, that is, if I was mistaken, and, and if somehow inherent to America 
is somebody will always be being put into this category. And then just, you know, right now I've experienced how this new category for Muslims has been created. Um, and so... In, in your head, who's the America that's doing it? I guess that uh, um, in America are two different let's say, impulses. One impulse is a model for humanity. You can say a post-national impulse, which is principle, the idea that all human beings are equal. And I think that's been a, a very powerful, animating, and deeply attractive uh, American uh, feature. Probably the most attractive thing about America. Right. you know, And probably the, the, the single biggest... Uh, explanation for America's enormous success is, is in that principle. We talk a lot about that idea, the idea of the America before there was a nation, the trans-nation, which it thought of itself in the 16th, 17th century, a nation of all nations. It's Moby Dick nation, it's Pequod nation, 41 nationalities on that boat, which of course sails the world without any geographical limitation. The American yes. enterprise goes on, etc., that, that's the good, eternal, dreams from my father, America. Okay. Yes, exactly. And then there is the other America, um, which is, you know, the America that says, you know, we're number one. Because it's impossible to simultaneously hold, you know, both of these notions. That, um, you, you know, you can't really believe in, in national greatness and human equality at the same time. Or you can't strive for them both maybe at the same time. You know, I think, I think at a certain point they come into conflict. And America has also been about national greatness, you know, um, and, and a violently exercised, you know, national greatness. Um, but but in, a, in a Pakistani context, the way of thinking about that is, you know, if 3,000 Americans killed on September 11th, um, you know, and there's been 35,000 Pakistanis killed by terrorists since then, um, how do we balance those scales? You know, is a human being a human being? Is 10 Pakistanis equal to one American? Is it 100 Pakistanis to one American? Who knows? Um, but I think that, you know, you do have this, you do have this, um, uh, and you see it also in, 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 in for example, in, in Barack Obama. You know, um, I thought it was, it was fascinating, uh, the story of, you know, his preacher, uh, a pastor in, in Chicago. Uh, Jeremiah Wright. Jeremiah Wright. So Jeremiah Wright, you know, from what I can tell of the YouTube, you know, uh, uh, sermons that he has given, belongs to the sort of Martin Luther King-esque, um, we are all equal school, and is willing to say sacrilegious things in terms of America as number one nation to assert his belief in human beings are all equal. And But Barack Obama, of course, is in a tight bind because, mm. you know, he's... Um, President of the United States, so um, he's the figure of this national greatness as well as, you know, somebody who believes in human equality. And I think many of the contortions that, that Barack Obama has been through um, in, you know, how many Bush-like policies he's enacted uh, in foreign policy, not economic policy, um, uh, you know, speak to that. Because clearly his, his ideological makeup is very, very different from Bush. But confronted with the imperative of national greatness, he, he wound up making many of the same choices. And I think for me, what this comes down to is, you know, um, uh, you know that I think is something about the tension at the heart of America. And, and it's, it's um, 
you know, it's possible for someone like me to really love the aspect of America, which says all humans are equal, and to wish that a place like Pakistan could embrace that more. And in fact, everywhere could embrace that more. While at the same time, now having felt, um, you know, the repellent force of the um, national greatness um, when I'm being described as not being of the nation. Uh, so I'm in conflict with national greatness, so therefore I better sit down and wait my turn to get into the country if I get in at all. Um, that, is, that, is, uh, you know, that is strange. I guess, in a way, who knows which of those two things is more powerful. They both are us. Um, but right now, the, uh, the strive for national greatness, um, I think, is undermining the human equality. Um, you know, in the absence of the draft, the absence of taxes, the absence of investment in education, and the overinvestment in drones and war fighting machines, etc., um, America is becoming itself less equal um, in the pursuit of this national greatness. And I think the, the, the semi squaring of the circle is America's national greatness flows from its embrace of human equality. And when it forgets that, its national greatness, you know, declines. It starts becoming like any other country. And then, you know, there's no real reason why America should be any greater than any other country if, it's, if it doesn't stand for that principle. I loved your earlier novel, Moth Smoke, and I'd love you to talk about it a little bit. So many ways to, to describe it, but I see it as a story of two best pals growing up in Lahore, Ozi and Daru, turns out Ozi is corrupted, maybe undone by the privilege of studying in America. Daru is undone, corrupted, becomes a junkie almost by missing the privilege of studying in America and trying to make up for it, not least in an affair with Ozi's wife. And then it, of course, all comes together on the highway, as Rana Descripta says about Delhi. Ozi kills a man and Daru is convicted for it. Unwrap that parable, if you will, or, or tell us about that novel. Well, you know, when I started to write Mott Smoke, um, in a way, my, my two books have, have been sort of mirror images of each other, that I, I set out to write The Rutten Fundamentalist um, as somebody who had lived in and loved um, America, uh, but still had something quite strongly Pakistani, you know, in the way in which I looked at the world. Um, and that resulted in Rotten Fundamentalist. The flip of that was Maud Smoke, which was somebody who has lived in and loves Pakistan, um, but also has something American in my way of looking at the society. And so, um, you know, when I was growing up in Lahore and uh, spending my teens here and um, you know, the, the drugs had flooded into the country after the first Afghanistan war in the 1980s. Heroin, marijuana, weaponry. Uh, I mean, you know, as a teenager, we saw all of this stuff. And um, I just didn't see it being written about. Um, and, and I think, um, you know, Maud Smoke is, in, is a novel, you know, one of the central images in the novel is how people fire their guns in the air at weddings. You know, they fire these, you know, AK-47s are used to be fired into the air. They came flooding into Lahore after the, from the Mujahideen in the 80s from Afghanistan. And suddenly there were Kalashnikovs all over the city and at weddings and birthdays and things like that. People would fire bursts of automatic, you know, bullets into the sky. 
And of course, those bullets have to come down. Um, it's remarkable that actually the square footage of a city has very little you know, human component. So we people take up a very small bit of the land. So these bullets usually don't hit anyone. They just hit the ground. But, but a bullet going up and a bullet coming back down, it's not as down, it doesn't come down as fast as it goes up because of wind resistance, but gravity works the same way in either direction, and it can kill you. Um, and I got the idea because I went to this party once and I came out, there was a bullet in the bonnet of my car. And uh, um, I didn't know this. My mother in the morning uh, woke me up and said, where were you last night? And I said, you know, at some party. And she said, well, what's this? And she pointed this bullet that was stuck in the bonnet of the car. And I said, you know, I have no idea. And I started talking to the uh, driver um, who was a, uh, a Pathan from the Northwest Frontier, as it was then called, border with Afghanistan. And he said, oh, no, this is a bullet that's been fired straight up because if you see the angle that's come in, um, it's come almost straight down into your bonnet. And if somebody had fired it point blank into your bonnet, it would have gone through. So this is clearly... So that stayed in my head. I actually carried that bullet on me for a while. It was my sort of lucky bullet. Uh, and it found its way into the novel because the main character, uh, Daru's mother, dies sleeping on the roof during a moment of electricity outage because it's cooler on the roof when a bullet like this falls and uh, hits her in the throat and she dies. And for me, you know, that, that image of the bullet fired in the air that can you know, kill someone is the ultimate abdication of responsibility um, that you can celebrate in this way just by firing in the air with you know, no concern whatsoever for the result of that. And I think, I think too often in Pakistan, um, that's been a national uh, problem. You know, the abdication of responsibility and the blaming of anybody, you know, India, America, the powers that be, you know, whatever, um, uh, all of our woes. And I think that, um, uh, I'm not saying Pakistan was dealt the easiest geopolitical hand of all nations, but I think that when you start thinking in that way, there's an infantilizing uh, result that you start, because you think your problems are due to somebody else, you also think the solutions can't come from you, and therefore you don't solve your problems. Hmm. So in Mott Smoke, I think these two young men, um, with two very different sets of opportunities open up to them, both mess up, because it's not really your opportunities that make the difference is what you do with them. Mohsin Hamid, you're at home in London, in Lahore, in New York. Where's your heart today? And I'm also wondering, where would your children grow and thrive? I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not entirely at home anywhere now. Uh, uh, I live in Lahore, and I, I feel um, you know, reasonably at home in Lahore. But, uh, but somewhere along the way, I think I've, I've lost that uh, uh, completely certain home feeling. You know, it flickered for me in New York uh, when I was living in New York. I, I fell in love with the city. And certainly when I was in California in the 70s, I felt very much at home there. Um, but in the last decade or so, I think, between the U.S., the U.K., Pakistan, I you know, feel somewhat displaced anywhere I go. I think, you know, that it's a bad thing in the sense that, you know, it's, it's not the most serene uh, kind of existence you can have. But I think it's also a good thing because uh, uh, home can make you lazy, uh, I think, as a, as a writer. And so sometimes it's good um, to feel always a little bit off balance because you, you keep looking at things and trying to figure out what they are instead of assuming that you know what they are. But for my, for my daughter, uh, when we were moving back, my wife and I, our daughter was three months old. And um, 
we were in some cafe and uh and uh and she was in one of those you know baby harnesses where she's up on my chest but looking outward and she was staring at the uh little cakes and pastries in the cafe thing um very excited by all the colors and uh uh I was chatting with the barista and uh uh, somehow it came up where are you from Pakistan uh, oh but you're living in London good choice it's actually we're moving back to Pakistan he said really what about her and he pointed at our baby girl and uh, uh, you know he said uh, uh, surely this, that's not a good place for her to grow up and I said you know well maybe maybe not but that's not going to really change unless girls like her grow up here and change it um, and uh, so, you know, I mean, for my daughter, I would I would like her to be able to choose where she where she lives, but um, I, I I would like her to have enough grounding in a place like this um, that she uh, uh, you know hopefully isn't too frightened of it because uh, you know Pakistan seems very very frightening and uh, to the outside world a lot of the time the stories that come from this place you know but actually it's you know, no more frightening than tough neighborhoods of New York City or, um, you know, any big city in Africa or Latin America or much of the world, really. And uh, uh, not that there are no risks to living in a place like Pakistan, but I think um, it's important to be able to keep those things in perspective. So I would like her to at least have the skills of dealing with people here, looking at it with her own eyes, and making her own choice. And if she thinks she wants to live here, great. And if she thinks, you know, hell no, I'm out of here, then that's, you know, she can do that. Mohsin Hamid, it's a great privilege to sit in your study and hear about the reluctant fundamentalist, about the States, about Pakistan. I can't thank you enough. Thank you. Ben Mandelkern produced and edited this conversation in Lahore with the novelist Mohsin Hamid, our series, Another Pakistan, is a co-production of the Watson Institute and the Asia Society. Zamine Ansari is our producer in Pakistan, thanks also to Bina Sarwar of the Jung Media Group. The conversations continue from South Asia and also online. Listeners, please feedback your views, your Pakistan, with a comment on our website, radioopensource.org. I'm Christopher Leiden. Thank you for being part of the Open Source Conversation.